0: We've got some work to do this morning, friends, in Genesis chapter 1 as we begin a new series for the next term in this first 11 chapters of this first book of the Bible. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Our gracious God and most loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this part of your word as we think about these foundational truths. We pray that you would help us to understand something more of who you are, of who we are, and of what life in your world is meant to look like. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we all have a worldview. We all have certain foundational beliefs by which we navigate life in this world. Our worldview has to do with our answer to some of those foundational and fundamental questions about life and death, about heaven and hell and eternal realities, about meaning and purpose And how you answer those questions will reflect the kind of worldview that you have. And for Christians, the foundations to our knowledge of God and his world, what life is meant to be about, why death is in this world and part of our experience, and what God is going to do about it, uh, all come in, in foundational form from the book of Genesis. We go back to the very beginning. And the book of Genesis has always been about shaping or reshaping the worldview of God's people, uh, giving us explanatory power to understand the beauty as well as the brokenness of the world that we live in and the lives that we embody. Uh, This has always been the case. And so for the ancient Near Eastern world of which God's people Israel were a part, there there were key big worldviews into which and against which Genesis chapter 1 is explicitly speaking. And so the Babylonian worldview that would have been known in the ancient Near Eastern world uh, was a dualistic worldview that thought about uh, the creation of the universe in terms of a big cosmic battle between these deities that uh, fight together and from their fighting produce the universe that we live in. Uh, The Egyptian worldview would think about uh, the elements of creation, a very pantheistic worldview that sees the elements of the sun and the moon and the stars, the water and the land, as deities in themselves, uh, deserving of worship, deserving of honour and praise, shaping the way that you live. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 speaks into that ancient world and confronts those worldviews head on, and I want to suggest that it speaks into the first century world uh sorry, the twenty first century world that we live in in exactly the same way, taking on uh head on the, the, the different alternative worldviews that we see all around us that seek to explain those fundamental realities of life in this world. And I want to suggest that Genesis chapter one has huge explanatory power. When it comes to the world that you live in, to the God whose world this is, to the life that he has given you, and to the eternal life that he offers you in the Lord Jesus. You see, why Jesus would come in the first place to die for us on the cross and to give us eternal life, well, that has its foundations in what we're going to read and what we're going to see in the book of Genesis as we come back to the very beginning and the meaning of life, the point of history, the reason that we have purpose and relationships, the reason that there is pain and suffering, both beauty and brokenness all around us, it causes us to ask those big questions of who and what and how and why. And I think Genesis chapter 1 primarily gives us the who and also the why. Why? And so I suspect, I'm hoping, that it's no great surprise or shock for you, given that you're at church this morning, that when we come to the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1, that very first sentence of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And right away you see the worldviews of the ancient Near Eastern world are being tackled head on. No, it is not a dualistic world where different deities are fighting, a cosmic chaos uh, in which we need to, to, to fear these different deities and work out which one we should serve. No, God alone is sovereign and in control. He alone is ruling the universe from eternity past and he alone brings this world into existence and gives life and breath to us. And right away we see that the the pantheistic world of the the Egyptians, the pantheistic world of many indigenous cultures in this world, that cause you to want to worship the creation, to say maybe there is divine quality in the, the sun or the moon or the stars, in the ocean, in the land. But no, these things have been given their existence from the one creator God who alone deserves your worship and your praise, who alone deserves the allegiance of your life and your heart. And to a 21st century world that wants to say that everything that you see around you, the material world, the life and the relationships that you enjoy are simply part of a cosmic accident, the result of just a lot of heat and pressure. But know that there is a personal, authoritative, creative, communicative God who has made you in his image, who spoke and this world came into being. As we read in Colossians chapter 1 of the Lord Jesus, that he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And so even in this very beginning chapter of the Bible, we get these glimpses with the spirit of God hovering over the waters of the deep. As God speaks about himself in the plural, let us make mankind in our image. We get these glimpses that at the very beginning, when God alone, the pre-existent God, he himself is personal in a relationship of community between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that that's what lies at the heart of the universe, that that's why there is uh, purpose and personality built into the universe, because God alone is there in the beginning. He alone makes the free, deliberate and autonomous decision to bring the universe Into existence. And so, while it might seem a little obvious given that we're at church this morning, I think because we are selfish people in a self-obsessed age, we need to hear that the main character in the universe, the main character of the Bible, the key person that we need to understand is God Himself. In Genesis chapter 1 that we've just heard read, God is the main character. He's mentioned at least 40 times in the first two chapters. He is the subject of just about every verb. Verse 1, God created. Verse 3, God said. Verse 4, God saw. Verse 5, God called. Verse 7, God made. God separated. And so on and so on we go. The focus on, in Genesis 1 is explicitly that this is God's world, that he is in control, that he is the sole agent and reason for everything in the universe. He's the sole and ultimate source of power and knowledge in the universe and nothing exists, nothing happens without his say-so. He is independent. He is autonomous. He is the one God who freely creates and he does so for his own good purposes not bound by any other force or reason. Friends, this is the most fundamental truth of the universe, that there is a sovereign, powerful, personal God of love who alone stands at the beginning of all things and is the source and reason and goal of all things. That has always been a worldview-shaping and a worldview-challenging truth. And that's the truth of Genesis chapter 1. From the beginning, this account deliberately and explicitly sets itself up against any alternative claim that the universe came into existence by anyone or by any other means than the creative, autonomous, deliberate and purposeful action of the one eternal, powerful and personal God. And because Genesis chapter 1 has always spoken to different worldviews and alternatives in that way, can I say that it is more than capable of standing up to the scrutiny and the scepticism and the cynicism of our day too. It can speak to the alternatives, to the idea that all that we see and know and don't see and don't know simply comes from that cosmic accident. It can speak to the view that there's no purposeful or personal meaning behind anything. That morality and meaning are simply assigned and developed by our own reason and experience, by our own dreams and desires. But here you have it, friends, at the very beginning of the Bible and at the heart of everything, Genesis chapter 1 tells us that meaning and morality have been stitched into the universe by the God who gives meaning and determines morality. And so morality and meaning is something for us not to invent and shape by our own dreams and desires, but it is something for us to receive. It's something for us to respond to and submit our lives to. To the meaning that God assigns to us. To the morality that God assigns to his creation. And we do so and we submit our lives to that meaning. We submit our lives to that morality. Why? Well, because surely that will be the best way for humanity to flourish and to live out the good purposes of our good creator. Writer John Walton says the text of Genesis 1 charts a course of theological affirmation that results in a picture of an ordered and purposeful cosmos with God at the helm and he masterfully guides our course. And that fact gets emphasised all the way through this creation account with the what and the how Of creation. What is it that God did? This God who sits before all things and in whom all things hold together, what did he do? Well, he created the heavens and the earth. The totality of creation came from him. Uh, All through the Bible, you hear this phrase, the heavens and the earth, which is shorthand to represent everything in the universe. There is nothing else outside of it except God. And the word that we get here is that He created it. Which is uniquely something that only God can do. It's a word that's uniquely used of God because only He can bring something out of nothing. Only He can make something and bring into existence something where before there was nothing. Uh, That's opposed to the kind of creating that we do. Isn't it lovely when you see creativity expressed in this world? But when we see creativity expressed in this world, it's always just a matter of rearranging the things that we've already been given. It's never a matter of bringing something out of nothing. But the God at the heart of the universe, he creates out of nothing so that all that we see and hear and feel and taste and touch, everything that exists comes from the creativity of his mind and his imagination, all beauty and purpose and meaning. It resides in his mind. It's an expression of his glory. We're told at the start of this chapter that the earth was formless and empty, And it is God who brings order from that chaos. It is him and him alone who will form and fill the earth. And as he does so, he brings purposeful order to the creation of of this world, this universe. The thing that we see all throughout this account is the rhythmic, purposeful, um, uh, the, the... Uh, His creativity is rhythmic and purposeful, bringing purpose and meaning from chaos. The repetition and the rhythm is meant to to highlight this creativity of God that he's bringing order from chaos. Do you see that rhythm all the way through? The, The repetition? And God said, and it was. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning. And God said... And it was, and God saw that it was good, and there was, the the rhythm and the structure of this passage is meant to point to the highly ordered world, the creation that God has made. And the days themselves are set out in a highly structured, highly ordered way, paralleling one another, with the whole movement building to the climactic goal of day seven, where God rests and God rules. Uh, let's have a look at these days. The first series of three days, it's kind of like God forms the space in the first three days. And in the second three days, it's there that God fills the space that he has formed, right, and gives certain function to the cosmos. So have a look with me. Day one and day four, they're a pair. So on day one of creation, God creates the condition of light, in separation from darkness. And then if you look over in verse 14, on day four, God fills that space with the the luminaries to perform their function of governing and marking the light and the darkness, the sun, the moon and the stars. See how God forms and then he fills. And do you notice that as God fills the creation that he has formed, that he also assigns function and purpose and so there, on the, in in verse fourteen, have a look at uh, the the lights to serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, right? So God gives these these lights functions to serve humankind to mark seasons, to mark days, to mark years, and they exist why? To give a rhythm to the worship of God's people. That in creation itself is designed to remind God's people to be thankful, to be worshipful, to pray and to give thanks to the God who made them. And then did you see day two and day five are a pair. So on day two, God creates the ocean and the sky and over in verse 20, on day five, God fills the ocean and he fills the sky with fish and birds and he creates space on one day in order for purposeful function to be performed when he fills it on the corresponding day. Do you see the the rhythm there? So here, the focus, as in the rest of the Old Testament, that God creates out of nothing, he doesn't firstly, um, uh, isn't focused firstly on the making of material things. The focus is that God creates and assigns purpose God assigns purpose and meaning to everything in the cosmos. God creates material things and so often our focus is on the material things, how is the matter put together. But do you see in this account that, there, that God creates the material things for sure, but the focus is that he gives purpose and function and meaning to those things. Do you see the difference? Material things happen, but God's purpose and uh, function is what the focus is in this chapter. Um, I was trying to think how to kind of illustrate this point and I thought I'd show you one of my favourite books of all time. Does anyone else have this um, book? It's called A Hole is to Dig. Uh, It's a book of definitions, right? Right? And how do we make definitions? So often our definitions are about the matter, the thing itself, right? What is it? But I love this book of definitions because it talks about function and meaning and purpose and personality. It's about relationship, right? So a brother is for helping, right? A hand is for holding, the world is so you have something to stand on. Isn't it a beautiful picture? That so often definitions from our modern minds want to focus on the matter and how it's put together. But we know that there's so much more to the meaning, to the to the purpose than just something's DNA. Some things matter. That this world is purposeful. That this world is personal. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 1. Don't focus on how it is that God put the the stuff together. That's kind of a side point in Genesis chapter 1. The point is that it's purposeful. The point is that it's personal. The rhythm of chapter 1 highlights for us that God is exclusively sovereign and that as he creates, he assigns purpose and meaning to the world that he makes. And so one of the implications of reading Genesis chapter 1 like this and seeing um, the personality and the purpose, the meaning and the function behind things is to recognise that Genesis chapter 1 is not necessarily a chronological straight line step by step description of how the material cosmos came into being. It is not a scientific text. It's not a scientific description. It is a literary and a theological description. And so one of the implications of this is that you don't necessarily have to land in a place that says this is describing six consecutive 24-hour periods of creation. It may be describing that. God may have done it in six literal 24-hour periods. God's amazing. He could do anything. But the text itself doesn't necessarily force us to land there. The purpose of this text is literary and theological rather than material. So does it tell us anything about how God created? Yes, it does. Did you see how God created? It doesn't give you the step-by-step description, does it? What does the text say about how God created out of nothing. How did God create such a personal and purposeful world? Doesn't it blow your mind that the refrain that runs all the way through this passage about how God creates, it's simply, And God said... And it was. And God said, and it was. And God said, and it was. This personal and purposeful, this powerful God speaks, and oceans appear. He speaks and mountain ranges do what he says. He speaks and planets align themselves to his will. I can't get children to go to sleep when I say. I can't even get myself to go to sleep when I say. Or to get out of bed when I say. I take it that the more powerful you are the more authority your word carries. And this authority all-powerful God speaks and the universe comes into existence. His word is the ultimate authority so that what he says goes. His word is powerful. It is not impotent. His word is trustworthy. What he says will happen will happen. God's word is a life-giving word. It's a life-transforming word. It is a powerful word. In John chapter 1, we read that this powerful word is also a personal word. A personal word who took on flesh to make his dwelling among us, to reveal God uniquely and clearly and powerfully to us. As Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the eternal word, Jesus, the one through whom and for whom and by whom all things were made, as he takes on flesh and steps into his creation, we're reminded of the why of creation. When Jesus steps into his creation, we're reminded of the why of creation. We're reminded that creation is good, that what God made is purposeful and meaningful. It is good. And Jesus steps into his world because it's a good world. It's a fallen world. It's a broken world. It's a divided world. But it is a good world that he made, that he loves, that he steps into to redeem. Jesus meticulously created the universe to achieve his good purposes. And when he did, everything worked in accordance with the purpose and function that it was given by God. It's only human sin that brings about the brokenness, the rebellion, the sinfulness that Jesus stepped in to redeem us from. And so with Genesis 1 in the background, we're affirmed that the world that we live in is a world made by God and loved by God. That Jesus came to redeem despite our sin and rebellion. God will not abandon his good creation. But as we go to the other end of the Bible, we see that God will redeem and renew his creation in order that we might be restored not to the Garden of Eden and not to, not to Adam and Eve, but restored to the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness, where God himself dwells and where we will be his people and he will be our God. And where once again we will have access to the river of life, the tree of life, the river of life that flows out from the throne room of God. In a world where we're told day after day we live in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, Genesis chapter 1 reminds us that we live in a personal, a purposeful, a created world with a creator God at the helm who is to be worshipped and listened to, that his powerful word that we have in front of us it gives life, that it gives us new life. And as we continue this journey through the book of Genesis, we're going to see much more of God's good purpose, the why of creation, and what it means for us. But why don't we pray? Let's pray together. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so our good and powerful and purposeful God, we thank you. Amen.